what I think we should be talking about PBSA and many, many other living sectors is actually what's best. Are there any other challenges facing the sector that... Enormous, enormous challenges because these horror stories in the UK, you know, where they've been suddenly for two or three years, where they can't sell it. It was a challenge for everybody. After 18 months, I was absolutely exhausted. I've got so many questions. I had to live it for about 18 months nonstop. What was the pressure like? And that was when we knew we were going to get hit by this. I had to have a conversation with every client. What's going to be your next big change? Oh gosh, um, whatever I do next, I'm going to be the best. I just wanted to have a think and figure out what I was going to do and what I wanted to stand for. I'd, I'd love to get back into a student. I'd love to get back into co-living and, and, and really, really help people. My biggest mistake and my biggest learning is Hi, Stuart. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, You're welcome. Thanks, Gareth. Great to be here. I'll ask you the first question that we always ask. What is the hardest change that you've been through in your life? Oh, gosh. Um, COVID by a long way. COVID, um, it was a chance for everybody, apart from probably Boris Johnson, who rather enjoyed himself, I think. But um, I think it, it was a real challenge in the living sector. Um, it was a real challenge in there because we had to manage our residents, we had to manage our people, we had to manage our, our, our investors. And because of that, um, I had to live it for about 18 months nonstop. So like many of my contemporaries, I was dealing with probably two or three MP inquiries a week, two or three universities saying, what's happening with my students? parents on the phone why can't our children you know hand in their tenancies and what have you so all of that and then you add on top of that the hub and spoke issue of of operational real estate where you've got a head office um that oddly you know people compressed on not necessarily on top of each other but it's, a, it's an office you know you, you you work there and then have trying to have empathy for the people that were that were working and delivering services on site that were that had a mask and a piece of perspex to protect themselves. So that that really was the setup. And after eighteen months, I was absolutely exhausted. Um, and my my real biggest error was not having a month of doing nothing. I should have had a month off. I should have done absolutely nothing and just completely decompressed. Um, however, I thought to myself, you know what, I, I change is as good as a rest. And um, and that was a mistake I made. I went, uh, I did want to go into retirement living, but I um, I went too quickly. I should have had that little break, figured out what I wanted to do, um, which would probably stay at CRM, and, um, and, then, and then restart again. And... Uh, Hindsight's wonderful, but that was a huge error. Um, yeah. And it's taken it then it then took another two years. That I said, right, okay, I'm going to take some time off over this summer. Look, there was a rugby World Cup. Um, the Ashes were on, um, and I just wanted to have a think and figure out what I was going to do and what I wanted to stand for. Um, and it's been hugely beneficial. And that would be my biggest mistake and my biggest learning is. There's times when you just need to take a step back, look at what you want to do in terms of a career, in terms of that external 
your your face to the world that 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 point where you say okay i want to be known for this but also that introspection where you say okay what do i want to do what do i where is my self my id going to gain experience here what do i want to do and um having a couple of months off over this summer has really helped me focus in on that and deliver what i hope is going to be an exciting future till i retire i've got so many questions so uh... well, i hope that would i hope that would stimulate the conversation anyway absolutely so talking about that that covid period for student operators you know like um I mean, the first question is: I mean, you were CR, CR, CEO of CRM at the time. Yeah. Like, what what was the pressure like at that point? Balancing all those things you talked about. The well, let's start back in January. You know, we we my HR director and myself. I can remember sitting in our reception area and watching the TV and watching. If you remember that the ski party when they all came back to the UK. And that was when we knew we were going to get hit by this. We knew that point. So two or three months, we thought we need to prep for this. So the following day, we ordered the laptops and the cameras and, you know, all of this before the price went through the roof and you can get them for hide and hair. And then when we locked down in March, um, it, it was incredible because we, on a personal level, I think... Um, I had to have a conversation with every client. So we had about 65 clients and just to gain what they wanted to do Um, and be quite open and frank with them and saying, look, guys, you're going to lose two thirds of your income here or however many domestic students were uh, were resident. Some didn't go home, but it was a handful. Um, And from CRM's point of view and our our shareholders in Germany, um, we were going to lose two thirds of our income. If we uh, if we allowed students to break their tenancy, um, balancing against that is I think we had a moral imperative. I think it was unfair significantly if people couldn't live there but still had to pay for it, or they could go home and have that that shared sense of living. So I think from that pressure, that that financial point of view in the, in the first instance was horrendous um, because I didn't want to make anybody redundant. Because um, you know we're a four hundred company, but I—it's a cliche I, I accept—but I felt very much like a family, and we worked very hard to ensure that we we didn't make anybody redundant throughout that process, and we we only furloughed a number of people as well. It was only a handful because we still had people living there. You couldn't shut down the asset. We still had bills coming in, so we couldn't shut down finance. We still had to make sure that the buildings were safe and, and, and secure. You know, all of these are still going on, but our, our income is reduced by two thirds. So yeah, the, the the financial pressure was significant. Okay, well let's let's go back a bit and find out a bit more about you. So you went to to Durham and did philosophy. Did. Yeah. So why why did you do that? Well, I actually started off reading natural science, and it was really really hard. <laughs> and I really, I, 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 I went, I, stu- I did math, physics, chemistry at A-level and further maths. And I thought, this is going to be really exciting. You're going to discover everything. And really, physics is just a Trojan horse from fit for maths. And I just didn't want, I, I woke up one morning, was in a, I didn't wake up in a lecture theatre. I was in a lecture theatre. And I just had this, this moment where, 
I'm really not enjoying this. So I went to go and talk to my tutor and said, look, I'm, I'm enjoying the philosophy part. Can I, can I just take some time off, come back, read philosophy? And that's what I did. And it was eye-opening and it enabled me to spend a bit more time playing hockey, which I really enjoyed and played, played, played well at university. Um, it enabled me to figure out what I was going to do when I, when I graduated. And um, it was just a wonderful time. And I, I can't recommend Durham enough. I mean, it was tiny when I was there. There were about 6,000 students, nearly twice the size now. But um, it was a real friendly, small institution at the time. And when I, when I graduated, my goal was actually to join the army. Okay. Um, I, at the time, it was during the, the Bosnia crisis. And my grandfather served in the, in the Second World War, as, as many grandfathers did. And he, he, he was one of the guys that were in Germany during the, 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 the Belsen element and, and clearing people from there. Um, and he didn't really speak about it, as, as many of these very brave men and women did. Um, but really, he sort of stated, you know, you can't let this happen to your generation. And, you know, we saw these atrocities is happening in, in, in Bosnia and that was really my driving factor um unfortunately before I went to Sandhurst I broke my ankle playing hockey um and um just fell into marketing and advertising so because I, I knew I knew a guy and we got chatting he said oh, you, you'll enjoy this is right up the street so I ended up working for for an ad agency as I say how you went from so you went from natural sciences to philosophy yeah wanted to be in the army and then, yeah, then a marketeer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I, I think unless you want to be a vet, a doctor, or a dentist, or a lawyer, you pretty much, you come out with a good degree, you can do what you want. I think that's such, a good, then, such an important point. I think it is. And you've got to enjoy yourself. And if you don't, then it's hard work. And if it's good fun and you've got a good people around you, it's superb. I think we put and, so much pressure on students these days where, you know, like, you know, talking as you did, where you actually, you know that's that's brave to turn around and go actually i'm doing this reading this but i'm not enjoying it i'm going to do something else i mean i think i went the opposite way i wasn't enjoying my degree so i just got more part-time jobs and <laughs> did that yeah. instead um yeah and and but you there, there is that moment and i was going to i was going to talk about this later but about personal responsibility there are times when you you can't blame anybody else you can't blame the external you can't you know how many times do we see referees in football be abused by the players? Or the, or the, you can't control what the referee says. All you can do is control the controllables, which you have in your gift. And my, my controllable was to say, actually, I'm, I'm going to make a decision and, and go and do something else. But, and, and, and that was it. Um, and um, I went into advertising. So talk to me about that. Talk to me about being in advertising. It, it was a great time. It was late 90s, so it was still hard work. You know, I, I joined a company, which is part of a, a big group, McCann Erickson. Um, I didn't have a PC when I joined. I had a PA. You know, she was on twice my salary, but I was still dictaphone, you know, contact reports and notes. I didn't have an email address. We had different colored faxes for, for various bits of the job going through. Um, we had one guy who who was the the guy that could do Photoshop, and he was like a law a god. <laughs> um, you know, all of this is some completely shifted. You know, it's gone from 
from from that to you know everybody's got the power in their palm really to to do all of this and my first ever client was a company called hotter shoes and this is what really started my entire career was was this one client hotter shoes they used to be on the high street i think they still are in certain places but they they were based in Skelmersdale, which is in the northwest and they made shoes without being facetious at all for older people they didn't have seams on the inside i can remember all this now they didn't have seams on the inside so they were great for people that had diabetes so they didn't rub against the feet and da, da, da. they were wide so they were comfortable for bunions and you know all of these horrible things and i here i am a fresh face graduate 20 20 odd um trying to get into the head of 60 70 80 year olds and sell these shoes and design things around these shoes and from that moment on um insiders played a really important part of my role so that 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 empathy about what we do what we say and how we act is i think really important and that has sustained me throughout my career you know we may talk about that later but really providing that insight into you know the older people buying shoes actually our models were 45 because that's how they perceive themselves they perceive themselves as slightly older but at 45 and that made a huge difference to our marketing. We moved down from these gray-haired people down into sort of graying, you know, slightly differently. But it made a huge difference in, in, in terms of a sale. And then what, what did you do next? Was it Did you move into property next? No, then I moved down to London. Then okay. I joined Saatchi and Saatchi. Oh, yes. Which, which everybody knows about. And um, we, uh, again, great time to be there. That was through the dot-com bubble. So you see, first recession that I I worked through. Um, we worked with a, 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 you know, I'm sure they're they're very successful there. But there was a company I worked with that were, had huge money thrown at them called Shopping World Online. And what they wanted to do was create an online shopping mall with different shops around it, and you sort of wandered through on the internet. And you go, well, that's Amazon now. You know, that's this huge beast. And these guys were throwing way more money than, than Bezos was at this time. And it just never went anywhere. But it was a great idea. And then Amazon filled that gap wonderfully. But um, you still see some of the things that I did at Saatchi still now. So, uh, and again, it shows that insight. So I've gone from old people's shoes and various other things to now selling cement. And Blue Circle were one of my clients at the time. And the insight we gained there was a lot of the jobbing builders the guy that come and renovate your house or do your you know what have you, you know, bits and bobs around always put their cement on the back of the, their truck the problem was as soon as it got wet because it's been paper bags it went hard it had to be thrown away so there's huge wastage um it didn't do them any good it didn't do anybody else any good because it used enormous amounts of energy to create cement so what we did was work with the client and say let's put in plastic bags so you still see these plastic bags in, in on the back of trucks now, but happier builders. We're not sure that the resellers were that happy because obviously they gained money when they were selling when it went off. But um, of one cement in particular, sales went up 400%. So Amazing. again, it's that insight of knowing, actually, this will make a difference to these guys' lives. This will, you know, because they can't charge that back to the client, to their customer. They had to absorb that cost. So insight drove change there. 
Um, and that was that was really important. Okay. Then after that, um, I set up my own agency um, with three of the guys, and we grew in about six months to about thirty-five people from four of us. Wow. Um, we we weren't going to do professional services because we'd all worked on that before. I did some IP work and da da da, da and another guy did Microsoft. All of this, and that's that's sort of the area we're going to go into. However, serendipity. Um, we we knew a guy and we borrowed some space in a basement just off uh, Hanover Square, and he was a he was in real estate. And one day he came down and said, "Look, my design agency can't do this. Can you guys do it?" So we did it. We were really good at it. Um, we ended up winning a few Bentley Awards, and we went into real estate. And that's where I, where I first started getting into to to, to that sort of sector. Um, the problem was 2008 arrived, and Oh, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do was make people redundant. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a terrible, terrible thing. And I think that drove what I did at CRM, which I talked to about earlier, is I'd never want to make people redundant. It's never there. It's not the fault you know, of your, your team member that they have to go. It's your fault as a manager, as, as the CEO, as the owner, because you haven't managed or mitigated that risk correctly of what was happening. However, in 2008, no matter what we did to mitigate, we couldn't have foreseen this thing happening. You know, that that something, not inconsequential, but something so macro and micro in America would have an effect on the UK economy so dramatically. Um, So overnight we shrank and eventually, as as you're only too well aware, everybody stopped spending, particularly on marketing. Um, So we we folded almost as quickly as we grew. Um, I then went to work for a, a company that were called Sunlight Apartments, at the time when I joined, they had about 150 keys. You were a service department brand. And through, again, insight and um, through really good development management, we grew to about 900 keys in about four, three and a half, four, four years. Um, and again, that insight piece was around aiming at people that were, that were traveling, but more considered travelers. And I mean that from a business sense. What we found was that female travelers really like service departments because if they go to a hotel, you can't cook in your own room. You've got to go out for dinner or you're going into a hotel bar or restaurant. And there's always a chap who's a, you know, photocopier salesman or what have you. Sorry, photocopier salesman. But there's a photocopier salesman that's going to try and hit on the girl or the lady or what have you. And so there's always a, a pressure and an uncomfortableness. So with service apartments, you had your own kitchen, your, your own fridge and what have you. So you could exist in a foreign, you know, foreign, uh, an alien city or an alien location, completely safe and secure. And so we really push that really hard when we're talking to our, to our customers, our, our business customers in particular. And that made a real big difference there. Um, then I work, went to work for a, uh, a, a very high net worth internet, uh, individual. Um, he loved real estate. I love real estate, so we we got together. Um, he bought some beautiful kit around the country um, that he wanted to rent out as a whole unit, and we discussed this. And I, you know, I was I was quite adamant that um, we're in a global financial crisis here. This, you know, your company, so one asset was it was about twenty seven thousand pounds a night. Um, so pre GFC, great. Post that, you're competing with you know boats in the 
in the harbor at Saint Tropez or Nice or Cannes or wherever. You know, there's a corporates aren't going to spend this much money. Um, so eventually we had a big falling out. And I said, look, you need to take these, you turn them into hotels, sell them by the room, change the planning, change the fire system, off you go. Didn't believe me. No, 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 no. We're going to sell it all. And I said, they're just not going to. And eventually we parted ways. But it was a really important lesson to me that, that sometimes you just need to get rid of your initial idea and listen to somebody else. Give them as long as you need. And this goes back to the point of our podcast here, Gareth, is give people as long as they need to try and convince you. Um, and listen to them. The, 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 girl, the guy or the girl on reception can have a wonderful idea. So you shouldn't dismiss it. You should use those ideas and take them and run with them. If you disagree with them, say, fine, I disagree. And, and at the end of the day, it is your train set. But you, you, have, to, you have to be open to new ideas and new, new, new strategies. And, and um, at the time, this chat wasn't, and we disagreed. And then I had the great fortune to, to meet Keith White at CRM, and, and the rest is history there. Um, we'll come on to the CRM day shortly. One thing you talked a lot about there is about insights and you know and and that driving well successful changes by the by the by the sound of it. How do you get that insight? You know, going back to your cement argument, you know, it's you know how do you how do you get those insights? Almost get arrested is probably the start of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I know it sounds like you. You've just got to go and hang out. You've got to go and hang out. And um, I spent so much time in builders' yards just talking to them. And, you know, required, you know this, this shows how funny, funny ad agencies are. Required reading was, was Sun Tzu's Art of War. You know, it was very yucky. You know, everybody did that. The other book that I really enjoyed reading was To Kill a Mockingbird. And there's a line that Atticus Finch talks about there is, you know, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. And that's ultimately what you have to do. You have to have huge empathy and demonstrate that you can understand the issues that they're going through. Um, and you've got to have that when you're dealing with students. You've got to have that when you're dealing with young families. You've got to do, have this when you're dealing with graduates that want to live in co-living or later living or, you know, all of this living side. You've got to have that insight that enables you to say, you know what, this is, this is right. What I find the most hilarious aspect of my job as a when i was working in student is you take some investors around a, a great site and you go um, and they go oh, I, I could live here i said well in which case we probably got it wrong <laughs> yeah because it shouldn't be you know somebody at 35 40 shouldn't want to live there we should be aiming our buildings at 16 year olds because those are the guys when we finish building it are going to be moving in and we've got to be asking 16-year-olds what it's like to live there or what do they want to see? What factors do they want to see? Um, so you can spend as much time surveying people, but actually there's nothing better than just chatting and just seeing how they use assets. Um, one of the big things that I always talk to architects about, because architects design beautiful buildings, they say, oh, this is how it works, and look at, the, look at the windows and the fenestration and the facade, it's, it's superb. Great, good for them come down on a on a wet tuesday evening and see how they're using the communal space not at not during the day when they're all at lectures or wherever come up you know seven or eight o'clock at night and watch how they use the space and use that learning in the next asset and i think that's you just got to talk to, to talk to your audience 
find out about those shoes find out how they perceive themselves as other people whether they're 40 or 50 or 70 or, or have you find out how they what their perception is so you said you met keith white and then joined crm talk to yeah. me about how that came about um I, I applied to an ad it was as simple as that and um we just hit it off straight off i think we we saw in each other how we could really shift the market and when i joined we had about three thousand beds when i left we had about twenty six and a half thousand across europe in built to rent as well as co-living as well as student um and we had a great time doing it and we treated each day as a new challenge we treated each team member as a member of our family and we 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 recognized that we may have had only had 350 400 people working for us but actually they had wives husbands children that they were responsible for so ultimately we we said as a as an underlying theme to our to our team management is we're responsible for about 1200 people so that is our goal as a senior management team as an exec to make sure that that delivers for those people then we had to figure out how we we're going to deliver for our clients our customers so our clients again insight what do they want so our clients wanted massive reputation management you know they couldn't afford a fire they couldn't afford all of these issues they wanted really um, honest and open prices they didn't want something coming in you know actually we got it wrong it's actually another 500 pounds a bed they didn't want that because you know they uh they, they were selling it into their investment committee and ultimately they wanted an asset that they knew was going to perform so if we got all of those aspects right the clients were going to be happy and again we were showing insight because we knew that assets were going to move hands we we foresaw this very early on in our reputation in our in our time together keith and i and so we need to do something right now to figure out how to make this easier for our clients because if they find it easy and we don't you know have a bit of a bottom lip out and sulk then actually they're just going to still work with us so from the first day that they started working with us we assumed we were putting a data room together and so everything was in one file in one place it was a consistent across our entire portfolio because our clients were going to move and our clients were going to sell assets or buy new assets and what have you. And we had to ensure that that was, that was, that was the way it was. And that was very successful. And then for our customer, I went from the days of um, two meg broadband and, you know, the student could pay extra to double that. And the days of five bed clusters and the five bed cluster is still in existence. I was walking the dog this morning, thinking about what I was going to say today. And I was thinking, why are we still doing five bed clusters? Why aren't we changing the design? I'm sure we'll talk about this later. I'm sure everybody listening knows, but five bed clusters were designed because it could be turned into a two bed apartment for Resi in case it didn't work. So why are we still, I'm, I, I think we're pretty sure that PBSA now works. There's 1.1 million beds. We're pretty sure it works. So why are we still building five bed clusters? Anyway, that's another thing. But you know, those that was the period that I came into. I can remember looking at an asset in Nottingham. I think it was the one of the old Opal ones that that, that went around. It was nearly a thousand beds. And the communal space was about three times the size of my kitchen. 
You know, it's just incredible how the market shifted. And I think it's a really exciting time, um, particularly for design. I think it's, I think there are some golden opportunities still out there. I think it's, it's a market that's mature, but still has huge opportunity. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but it still brings huge enjoyment to me when I talk, you know, go to conferences or I speak to people that are in the PBSA market. It's so exciting. It's funny. I think the first time we ever met, I showed you around a five-bed cluster that I was incredibly proud of that I just refurbished. <laughs> it is, it is. You know, look at what walls we can knock down. You know, I can remember, I think it was, I think it was Jane at, at Fresh that had all, she had five rugby players living together. And for some reason, they thought it would be brilliant to knock through the walls <laughs> until they, they figured out, actually, if they bring a girl back, how on earth is this going to work? You know, it was a huge, you know, huge claim on their their uh, their deposit, but it was a five bed cluster. But they thought it would be more social. But times have changed. We need to we need to rejig both that build to rent, co living, later living. It, it just needs a rethink of how we can deliver a better product for our for our customer. So then you became CEO. Yeah. So how was that? Um. If it wasn't for the the the, the shareholder, it was great. Um, you know, we I was I was brave in going into new markets. Yeah, um, we we were bought um, just before I became CEO by by Corsair in Germany, um, and I don't think they quite understood what they'd bought, um, and they didn't use us to our potential, and that was that was disappointing from my point of view that I couldn't sell it in better. Um, you know, we 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 we'd been doing this for an awful long time. We were doing it very very well. We were doing it very cost effectively, and yet it was always a challenge to get them to understand our, our, our product and our our offering and our service. Um, but from a CEO point of view, and from managing such a successful company as CRM, it was great until COVID hit, and then, you know, as we discussed earlier. So, talking about student accommodation, as I. I was going to say often do, but always do, <laughs> probably on this podcast. Um, and affordability. So I've been talking to a lot of people on the podcast and about affordability and and what that really means. I don't want to ask too many questions in one go here. So what that really means and whose responsibility is it to provide affordable whatever that means, accommodation to students. So hopefully I haven't like triple barreled that question. <laughs> no, you're fine. You've got some really good ones there. I'm going to change the word because I think if, there's a problem with affordable and value. So I, I always use this example when I'm talking to clients that the Savoy at its peak used to have three members of staff for every guest. That's not including the F&B. Travel Lodge has about one member of staff for every 50 guests. They're both hotels, but they're different price points. What I think we should be talking about in terms of PBSA and many, many other living sectors is actually what's best. What, you know, if I said to you, Gareth, what's the best bottle of wine in the world? You know, and somebody on the podcast would go, well, I know the best bottle of wine. It's a, you know, Latour de Lure, 1900, you know, and it goes for 5 million quid a case or whatever it is. If I say, what's the best bottle of wine at £10? That's the question we should be asking at every price point. So we know from the Unipol 
NUS survey earlier in the year that got an HEPI survey that got a lot of our time, probably a month ago now. You know, the average student accommodation is costing about £7,000 a year. What, what would it make in terms of our design, in terms of our design and our service offering and our scale, because I think mass is important to get that, that, that saving, if we were £10 or £20 under there, but still provided the very, very best offering at that price point. And that, for me, is what excites me. Um, because I think that word best is that's taken me three months over the summer to come up with. It's right. Okay. Whatever I do next, I'm going to be the best and I'm going to offer the best for my, for my, for my student, my customer, what have you and say, right, we're going to best at 130 quid or 140 quid, which used to be the average, you know, that was this, that was your average 44 weeks, 42 weeks, uh, plus the bed. Okay. What can we do at that price that makes it the best? What can we do at 200 pounds? What can we do at 300 pounds or 400 pounds? Because we, lots of customers want different price points. Not everybody wants to go to the top of the market. And I think that's the mistake people are, are thinking about this, this value word or this, you know, the, the, the affordable. To some, 300 pounds affordable. Uh, and, you know, they go, oh, well, I get free breakfast and I get free bike hire and I get all of this. Well, you don't get free anything. It's paid for. You're paying 300 quid a week. That's where, that's where it's coming from. So I think what we've got to be able to say as, a, as an industry, as a, a sector, is say, what can we do that's the best at that price point? You know, in some instances, that may be 300 beds and we've got to put security on or we've got to we've got to let technology take the burden or we've got to think about those clusters. You know, when you and I met, Gareth, all those years ago, you know, you used to have two corridors back to back. Think of that wastage. Why don't we just do a 10 bedroom cluster? All of a sudden, you've shrunk the red line. You've, you've lost about five or six square meters of building. Guess what? That saved you nearly two and a half thousand quid for that one cluster in terms of construction. So what can we do to change, to make it the best? And I think that's the answer that I give to, to talk about affordability is actually what's affordable at these different, what, what's, what's the best at these affordable levels for different types of customer. So I think we need to really jig up how we're thinking about it. Also how we're communicating to our students about it. Because they, they, again, they think that best is this all singing, all dancing, all studio scheme, you know, 20 odd story tower, you know, concierge service, wiping their asses and what have you. <laughs> forgive, forgive that. But, you know, that is all included in the price. What can we do that's the best? You asked about whose responsibility it is. I think there needs to be an element of personal responsibility about this. And planning doesn't help. The planning restrictions are very difficult. VAT issues around summer income issues around section 106 contributions issues around. Um, and I'm not going to get into specifics about London in here. I will do in a minute because that's a whole different kettle of fish. Um, there's also the issue around um, nominations because again, um, you can do it well, you can do it badly. And we see how Will in Liverpool has done it really well. So Liverpool, John Moores, doesn't have, or it's got minimal number of its own beds. And yet it goes out to nominate every year. And I think that gives their students some sense of security, but it doesn't necessarily provide the owners and operators with that security. So that's, 
puts under a bit of pressure there. So naturally there's price issues for the knock-on to their students. Um, but I think ultimately um, it comes down to the size of land you can buy because we know that they're costing, assets are costing 70, 75, 80,000 pounds a year to build per unit. Um, but land has gone up. And if you can't go high because of planning or you can't go wide because of planning, then you're not going to get that scale and you won't be able to bring it back down again. So who's responsible for it? It's difficult to say. I'm sorry I didn't give an answer there, but there is a lot of factors at play. I would like to say universities should play a bigger part in this. You know, universities should be able to say, yeah, we really like this. But um, at the end of the day, they, they're, they're narrow focused on their freshers. Um, and planners should be able to say, actually, if we put 300 students in there, oddly enough, or 400 students, make my maths easier whilst I'm talking, we saved 100 HMOs. And those can go to young families and we're taking pressure off that housing market and we're taking pressure off these, these landlords that run HMOs. So you talk about university responsibility at home. I said to you before we started recording, I was listening to an old podcast that you recorded where... I think you were talking about the the German model where you know universities teach and yeah. the private sector house. Do you think that's that's something we should be looking to take on or I think you'll find in the newer post ninety two universities, I probably would say yes. I think in some of the older universities where that is is part of their brand, then probably not. You know, the particular collegiate ones. Um, but I think that We'll start to see universities, as I said, John Moore's going down that route. Um, and I think we'll start to see that. You know, I, I, I was in a meeting a couple of weeks ago and I said, you're, you're only a recent graduate. Where did you stay? He said, oh, I can't remember who ran it. I said, what was it called? He said, such and such. Hall. I went, ah, it's Unite Building. Oh, yeah, it was it. So, you know, <laughs> we talk about brand, as, as I've already said. I, I was an, an ad man before, but... Rand actually is about the building. I don't think there's much equity in the asset. but So I think universities could quite happily move this on to the private sector. They could be white-labeled or what have you, as, as they are often in Bristol. But I still think there's opportunity for universities to think differently about how they engage with the private sector. They think that we're stealing their students and we're not. We're helping their students. We're part of the offering of that city. Sorry, Gareth, just to finish this point particularly if we're talking about that affordable, that best factor. You know, if a student comes on their open day, everything is priced at 250 quid a week. And then the moment that they're going to go, no, you're not going here. And that's funny, like, uh, it was a few years ago now. Um, but, you know, a family member of mine was due to go to university. And having worked in the sector, you know, I kind of understood this, but really saw that the choice of university was affected by the cost of accommodation and living in general you know it was a it was a choice between you know staying locally where he was in in manchester which still has fantastic universities mm. or his big dream of going to london you know which was going to cost him three times as much probably if, if i were one of the admissions team in some of the london universities i'd be panicking i would be thinking the bright we're just going to get people that are wealthy not necessarily clever coming here now um, and I think that's one of the direct responses of the London plan. It's just, it, had, it had the right sentiment, 
but it didn't quite have the right teeth or the right methodology of making it work. So, um, so you, you talked about it earlier when we were talking about change. So how did you come to leave CRM? I was just tired. I should have had that month off. I just thought, you know what, I need a, I need a fresh start, a change. I'm going to, and I always wanted to go into to experience later living. I wanted to know, I knew that that was the missing piece of the puzzle in my, in my, in my, uh, I was going to take the analogy too far. It was the missing piece of the puzzle. I'd done student, I'd done build to rent, I'd done co-living. I needed to understand this new market. And I think after two years I do, um, the similarities are enormous. Um, you know, you still could have a safe building, you could have a let building, you could have an operating building or buildings. Um, the rental model is really exciting. Um, what I do find fascinating though, is it's very, very difficult to make money in later living at the moment um, because of the F&B offering. You know, it is a challenge. Um, and obviously you communicate to your residents slightly differently. <laughs> Um, TikTok isn't necessarily the right tool. You know, a nice letter through their door is probably the best way of doing it. So, um, so I was always going to do that. And this opportunity came along, and I, I took it and went to RVG, which was owned, which is still owned by Exa. Um, so clearly, deep pockets and a, a, and a real opportunity to grow there. Um, but I was tired. I didn't give my best to RVG. I should have done. Um, and after two years, I, I, I'd had enough really. That makes sense. And talking about later living sector. Mm. So, I mean, you've talked about what attracted you to the sector, but you say the cost pressures around F&B offering. Are there any other challenges facing the sector? that Enormous, you know? enormous challenges, particularly around freehold and shareholding. That was one of my questions. Yeah, yeah, good. I'm, good. I'm glad. I'm glad I got in before the question because I, I, I'm going to go up on my moral horse here again. Um, many of our, many of the listeners, I'm sure, have, have had a lived in a shell flat in London, you know, be it a converted Georgian townhouse or what have you. Um, and if you think the service charge is too high, you can move. Good. That's that's your prerogative. When you come to later living and you're seeing service charges go up by 14 or 15% and your pension is stuck at 3%, it's a challenge. And I think that, you know, you, you, you've got big old companies that own these assets. Why are you putting all the risk onto 70, 80, 90 year olds when you could just absorb it and, and move your management model differently and go onto management charge? And I think that's what we're going to see in the market because it's just immoral. It's immoral to put all these costs on to, onto, a, onto your customer where it just doesn't work. So do you think it would move? <clears throat> excuse me. Do you think it would move? So obviously, you know a lot more about the sector than I do, but um, yeah, there's there's clearly an ownership model on, you know, um, well, there's different tenures. Do you think it would mm. shift more to a rental model but adding inflated rent i think what we'll see is we'll see more people coming into rent as people are more comfortable renting i met many of our customers that were renting that didn't understand it was the first asset they'd ever rented so they didn't understand it so they would get you know i'm not speaking out of turn here but 
an example was they were saying, how can I clean the lint out of this washing machine? I can't get it. But it says in the handbook that I should. Or, you know, I can't put painters out. I said, yes, you can. I said, but you've got to repair it after, you know, you, you. It, it was an understanding thing. So I think once that that becomes more, more understood, I think that'll be fine. I think from the ownership side, I think we'll see some hopefully significant shifts. In, in New Zealand, which I think is the model that we should follow over here, everybody understands what they're buying. So in Australia, it's a big point, in New Zealand, the typical model is purchase at a, a price, $300,000. Whenever you leave, you sell it at that price. The manage, the, the, the operator, the management company takes a, a deferred management fee, which may be a certain percentage of that. Um, and they'll take the growth. But it means that that's not, that asset isn't stuck in probate. It isn't for the kids to sell on. And, and we hear these horror stories in the UK, you know, where they've been selling it for two or three years, where they can't sell it. And the, the, the family having to still put in the service charge. So I think it then comes back to the to the management company that can then recreate a lease um, to the next owner. The problem that we have in the UK trying to do that now is that we'd have to re the operator will be taking two lots of stamp duty, mm. and the government needs to say actually that tripart agreement can happen simultaneously, provided the government gets two lots of stamp duty, everybody's happy. Um, so and I think that's what the 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 the, the government the, the supporting uh, community of ARCO, which is the, the later living equivalent of ANIC, for those people that know, um, are really pushing for quite heavily in, in Parliament at the moment. Okay. And um, now, Red's I mean, talking about intergenerational assets. See, I managed to say it right one, you did, very one well. time. Um, so for those that don't understand that as a product, talk to me about what an intergenerational asset is. Well, let's start. Let's start about later living, and then come back around, if that's okay. So, sure. And it, it comes from insight that we spoke about earlier. Is a lot of the phase one later living assets are in the middle of the countryside, which is very beautiful. But what you're doing is you're effectively picking up a resident that is maybe widowed or as a widower, picking up and transplanting them into a new community, and the more gregarious ones will thrive there. The less gregarious ones will go, well, you've moved me to near my children or my grandchildren. Um, and they go, well, we'll come and see you every other weekend. Whereas in reality, what I think should be happening, and I think RV and a, a few of the, the, uh, the, the a few of the other guys are doing, is actually creating um, retirement communities pretty much on the doorstep of where they already live. So that the... They're still members of the same golf club. They're still in the same reading club. They're still in the same. So that community still exists. And I think what that enables to happen is that these asset classes are coming back into the town and city centers rather than being in the middle of nowhere where people are just counting squirrels all day so that they can be active members of the community. And I think that's really important. And that activity and that active member of that community, when you're adding in then young graduates going into purpose-built PBCL, purpose-built co-living, which I think is a really good action. Um, those guys can use the older people as mentors. You know, you've got crash facilities. Why aren't pe you know, people want to volunteer? We did some research when I was at RV that the volunteering that 
the later living residents or later people that live longer is worth about 2% of GDP for just their volunteering services. So you've got golden opportunities where you're putting people of different age groups together to come together to form a larger community that has huge benefits to each and every one of them. And I think at the moment, we're in a we're, we're creating silos of based on age group, not on outlook on life, not on how engaged they want to be. We're just segregating people by age. I'm not sure that's sustainable. Why are we doing that then? Um, planning is one. Um, funding is another. So funds are specifically set up for PBSA. Great. Okay, that's PBSA fund. Got I've got another pot of cash over here for co-living or built to rent or single family homes or what have you. Whereas in reality, we should be working with, and it will it will happen when fund managers and fund directors and investment committees begin to understand how all the pieces fit together. But I think we can accelerate it and really bring something exciting to the market and just say, look, we've got a really, really, really efficient energy center here. Good thing for ESG. We can make these carbon neutral. We share that amongst some low single-family homes, district heating system. We've got on-site maintenance, so they're happy. We've got a tower of students over there in the corner near the campus. We've got some uh, later living or co-living here, which can benefit from the same reception space. All of this starts to work together. So you've got very efficient management, very efficient energy centers, waste disposal, all of that can be done on site. You've got a very smart i'm going to call it campus because i think it's a good word to use in that point it says campus that can that can envelop a lot of age groups of people that just want to come together and live there sounds like you've got a vision it's that best it's that best i i talked about earlier i want i want people to have the best time of their lives no matter how old they are or what they're doing i want them to have the best time of their life and we we as operators, we as developers, we as con, you know, as, as as owners and investors, can only provide the hygiene factor behind that best. We can only provide the real estate and the and the 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 area in which they can operate. Uh, the, the residents can can live and experience that. But we have to do it really well. We have to be the best we can be when we're doing that to steal the army's life, the, the army's line. But we've got to be able to provide that hygiene factor so they can go off and do what they want. Okay. Um, now, I keep jumping around, but going back to back to you for a few minutes, like, we don't, I don't know much about you, Stuart, even. Where did you grow up? I'm a northerner. I'm, I was born um, and, and brought up in uh, just on the border between Lancashire and Yorkshire. I was on the Lancashire side, so I was naturally on the best side there. Um, <laughs> and hence, I never have white rose in the house. Um, but um, yeah, that's that's where I was born. That's where I was brought up. I was I went to a, um, a, 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 second, a state secondary school where 70% um, of the students were, English was their second language. A lot of immigrants there. Um, and I was the first member of my family to go to university. So it was, I've always, you know, worked hard and, but also recognize that I was very lucky to, to, to do what I've done. I always find, you know, talking, spoken to a lot of people on the podcast recently that, um, 
there was a person or a job that sort of led them in a path. You know, I always talk about mine where I got a part-time job in a hotel and ended up in hospitality for 10 years because I loved it so much. Yeah. What, you know, obviously you then went off to, to Durham and to university, but, you know, what inspired you to kind of take that path? Or who, maybe? I think there's a couple of guys. One would be Keith. Keith White has, has really, really helped me grow into to who I who I am. Um, and the other guy was a, a guy called Mike Walker, who was I met him for nine months. I worked for him for nine months in that in that gap between my natural science and my philosophy degree. And he he was only you know five foot and a bit, very quietly spoken, but he used many many management techniques to bring you in. And sort of, so he spoke quietly. So you concentrated, you listened, you lent into him. And he was very engaging. And he drove me down that insight route. He said, look, you know, find out what they want. Find the gap in the market. And you can only find that gap by knowing people. And so really from that moment on, it was about finding that, that whole, that, that nugget, that, that fact that makes people, what makes people different. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. And, and those two probably have made a big, big impact on my life. And um, you, you said at this, well, towards the beginning of, the, of this conversation that you obviously took, you know, have taken a break and wanted to decide what you want to be known for. Mm. What, what do you want to be known for? Well, this, this, this is the best word. So oddly enough, I started on that, that on the what I want to do outside first. You know, the best. 140 quid unit, the best 200 quid unit, what have you. And then I, it kept coming up best, best, best. And then I figured out actually, I want to be the best I can be. I want to be the best CEO that I can be. I want to be the best son-in-law, best son or what have you. And I, it, it was quite, gosh, it was quite emotional really having this sort of, this epiphany, if you will, of just going, actually, I'm now at a point in my career where I can take that time and take that focus and, and, and enable myself to just be that best person. And I think I've, I've learned enough going through life now that I can actually pass on that, that, that knowledge and really bring people forward with me on that journey. Okay. Uh, we've now come on to the quick fire round questions. So okay. I'll put my you... glasses on then. In that case. <laughs> if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? I'm allowed to, I think on this one. So I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, first of all, I think people t- need to take a little bit more personal responsibility. I think that, that, that we're seeing people say, oh, it's their fault. Well, actually, no, take some responsibility for this. You, you, you've, had, you've dealt with this badly. It's your fault. You deal with it. You, 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 so I think that's first. Um, and the next thing is I think that um, we need to sort out politicians and social media. I think that... Um, by dismissing it as being mainstream media's fault or dismissing it this way or the other way means that as a young person now who we know gets their news from social media rather than the nine o'clock news or the 10 o'clock news, I think it's it's really muddying the water. I think it's making problems that are going to be very, very, very difficult to unpick in the next 10, 20 years. So I think we either need to say that politicians cannot use any form of social media or that they are term limited. So also, you know, you say, right, you get 10 years. That's it. 
so that people are actually doing things for the good when they return to society rather than for themselves. So I think, I think that will have a huge bearing on our society. You know, we're hearing about all these atrocities on both sides in, in, in the Middle East at the moment. What's true, what isn't true. Um, you know, I, it's just what you've seen on that, that platform at that moment in time as to whom you believe. And I think that is, is going to be a real challenge that our, our the younger people and and older people have, have seen. Okay. And what advice would you give to someone who wants to change direction but doesn't know where to start? Come and talk to me or come and talk, go and talk to anyone. Just take time and go and chat to people and just figure it out together. Walk the dog more. You know, just walk the dog, look at the view and go, what do I want to do? Sit on top of a hill. I know it sounds cliche, but sit on the top of the hill, listen to the birds, listen to Vaughan Williams' Lark Ascending, and just hear this beautiful singing piece of music come through. Then you go, okay, now I'm inspired. I'm going to go and do this. And just just take the take the time, even if it costs you money, take the time. It's worth it. It really is. I think I I, I can't say this highly enough. It's 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 proven invaluable invaluable for me over the summer. Question I've been wanting to ask you: What's going to be your next big change? I want to be the best. Um, I'd love, I'd love to go and raise some cash and start start on this journey. Um, I'm not sure that I can because I don't think the, the the guys are willing to take the risk yet. But that's going to be my next challenge over the next couple of months. I think to go and have a chat with with some investors and, and see where we can get to. But I'm working with some really interesting guys that have been around the market for a while that are going to do something else. I'm, I'm helping those guys grow. Um, but I, I'd love to get back into student. I'd love to get back into co-living and, and, and really, really help people. Okay. And final question. If you were to recommend a guest or more than one guest for me to speak to on the podcast, who would it be? Oh, um, well, you've got Martin Blake, who's retired, which I think would be, it would be great fun because he's, he's, you know he can say what he wants now. So I think that would be quite exciting. Um, I would say the housing minister, but I don't know who it is because it's you know it's it's a new day, so it could be a new one. I was going to say it might change by the time this podcast goes well, exactly. out. So, so I think that would be exciting. Um, I would I would I would talk to a really good architect, you know, someone like Manus over at, at, at TP Bennett that would go right. Okay, this is what we're thinking. What are they? Think? What's their future? Um, but I'd also like to talk to a futurologist who just says, right, okay, this is what we think is going to happen over the next 10, 15 years. I think those are the exciting guys because we don't know. We don't know what's coming. You know, I, it's, I'm always amazed that the iPhone has only been around 15 years. It's changed our lives so dramatically. What What's the next thing coming? Can you imagine being in Canada at RIM going, look at this Blackberry. We're the, we're the, we're the bee's knees, aren't we? Look, we're going to be insaleable in this position. And then imagine, you know, overnight, effectively, that business went under. So what what's that next thing? What's the next thing that's coming? And I think that, that those would be the guys that I would talk to. That's great. Thanks, Stuart. Um, I just want to say thanks very much for uh, for joining me today. I mean, I've I've really enjoyed our conversation. And, um, you know, it sounds like you've definitely been on a journey and, and you sound ready for the next step. That's for certain. Completely. Really excited for it. I think it's, it's there's still so many opportunities there. It's going to be great. Thanks, Stuart. You're welcome. Thank you, Gary. 
Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Know Your Shift. I hope you found it really useful and you can take some practical advice away with you. Please do remember to hit that follow button as it really does help.